Well, and that is that is the experience, right? Is this phrase knowing the full story? everyone welcome back to no script an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts i am jackson nikolai i am jacob man christensen and we are back as a pair today after yeah. a week where i flew not solo but without jackson nikolai as i had a conversation with Kay edmonds last week about detroit 67 by dominique marceau uh, really, it's always a privilege to do the guest episodes. They're so interesting. They're such a different way to approach a script. People who aren't us have different ways of reading scripts, different things that they take away from them. So the guest episodes are always some of my favorite episodes, and, and that episode in particular was just a blast to talk to Kay about. Yeah, definitely. If you haven't had a chance to go and listen to it yet, listen to it after this one. It was a great episode and kind of the end of a, a dyad on Detroit plays. Um, so, uh, so yeah, definitely. Uh, if you if you haven't listened to it, head back and hear that. But I am excited to be back. I'm excited after my brief hiatus to get to jump into another play today with a new playwright for us. That's right. Today we are talking about the play Language of Angels by Naomi Zuka. And this is, uh, interestingly, kind of another, like, locational play, right? I mean, we've come out of these two plays that are strongly about Detroit, Detroit itself, and then Detroit 67, which are, you know, located in that kind of middle America, dying as industry kind of fails, smaller, mid-sized cities. And now we're talking about a play, this play, Language of Angels, which is set in the Southeast, in North Carolina, and very specifically set in that area. Yeah, very Appalachian-centered. Caves play an important role in it. So, so yeah, definitely very regional and uh, specific to to the or, or the specificity of the place has impact on the characters. Absolutely, it does, and and that will be a great conversation, I'm sure, coming up. We one thing we do want to let you know about before we hop into the rest of the episode is that we are only three short episodes away from the end of season six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna finish up the season here, as is our practice. We'll take uh, some of the summer months off and kind of get recharged and reset for a new season. But don't worry, we're coming back out with another season sometime in either the late summer or the early fall. Um, so so it's always. A little nebulous exactly what date we get started again yeah. it depends on our schedules and, and many things but another full season is coming your way starting sometime in the early fall yeah uh, keep an eye there. out we'll let stuff we'll let everybody know as stuff comes out but again three more episodes this season that should take us i think to the first week of june or something like that where we release episodes we're talking about language of angels this week and then the rhinoceros a great eugenie Inesco play and then we will talk about one of my favorite musicals company by uh, Stephen Sondheim. So that is a great setup for the end of the season. Three very different plays. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're going to get to go on a bit of a wild ride for the end of the season. So it should be a pretty fun time. 
Great. Before we hop into our conversation about language of angels today, we do want to ask everybody who hasn't already to head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. That URL is where you can become a supporter of the show. We have incredible supporters over on Patreon, people who are giving us money monthly to keep No Script running. We love to do this show. It's a great joy in our lives, but it is an expensive joy and a time-consuming joy, and it would not be possible to do without the financial support of our listeners on Patreon. If you go over to patreon.com slash podcast, you can choose a tier. The tiers correspond to a different monthly amount that you choose to give. The lowest tier is $1 a month. Totals $12 a year, automatically comes out of your account without you even thinking about it. I think if I stole four quarters from you every month, you probably wouldn't know. <laughs> so this would not be a huge burden on the vast majority of you, I know. And Jackson and I really feel like at the very minimum you are definitely getting a dollar a month worth of value from the time that you spend with no script so please consider heading over there the tiers go up from there for those of you who can afford it or who would like to support the show more than that but the most important thing is that you choose to support the continued work of the no script podcast over there once you're a patron you can be uh, you get access to the patron only posts that we post over there which does include more advanced notice on what scripts are coming up on the podcast as well as reflections on shows we see art we see other things that are interesting to us over there so please consider that patreon.com slash no script podcast if you're already a supporter huge thank you to you you make what we do possible yes thank you all so much for being patrons of the show it means the world to us we'll see you over on patreon.com slash no script podcast and now back to the script here we go jumping into the script with a new playwright so we want to just give you a brief introduction to naomi izuka um naomi uh izuka is a playwright she works at the uc of san diego university of california san diego and works on various tv shows as a writer uh but but is a playwright um and that's 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 one of the main things she teaches out there yeah and and uh, she's not a playwright I think a lot of people have heard of, Naomi Izuka. She's got several plays, which I quite like, including this one. But she is a really, I, I think, a high-caliber playwright. She's recently involved in a, a sort of a similar residence thing with playwrights like Sarah Rule, right? That's right. Yeah, she she won a, or was nominated to a Lewis Center um, for the Arts uh, Award or position at Princeton University and McCarter Theater Center, and and shared that position along with Sarah Rule. So uh, I believe it was a kind of residency position where she taught at Princeton for a while. So so yeah. So while you know not a, a lot of her plays are in the the big spotlight, she is a well acclaimed playwright, and certainly this play that we'll be talking about today uh, exemplifies that. This play, Language of Angels, was written uh, back in kind of. Uh, 1999 and and then was premiered in February of 2000 out in San Francisco, California at Campo Santo uh, intersection. Um and 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 this play um uses a couple different forms of theater, right? Uh, Naomi Izuka kind of sits uh, between a bunch of different cultures. She was raised or grew up all over the world. She, uh, her, her father is Japanese and her mother is, uh, is, is Latina. So, so she has a lot of different cultures that she's playing with in her plays, and this play is no exception. She plays with no drama quite a bit, if you're familiar with Japanese theater, a lot of the tropes of no NHO drama and, and that sort of structure. Um, so, so this, this 
play uh, deals in dreams, deals in uh, uh, some some. I don't want to give too much of the the synopsis away, but deals in some ghost stories, and that's that's uh, some of the fun things that you see in the uh, reviews of this play. That this play has been done in Chicago, it's been done in Seattle. A lot of people are kind of grappling with the kind of ghost story etherealness of this play, set within you know a- Appalachia <laughs> right so so it's it's got the, the mystical mixed with this uh kind of down to earth uh North Carolina grittiness uh as well okay so Jackson got the easy one I think this week uh, the synopsis on this one is a little bit funky <laughs> and strange because it, it's it, it is a very non-linear non um like the facts of what happened in the plot are very much debated and whirled around and rethought of by the characters because this is uh, is this is a ghost story or a series of ghost stories basically. Um, Naomi Izuka is kind of known for th- her love of the ghost story, the supernatural story as part of theater. She has given a couple of workshop presentations on it where she says things like, you know, the ghost story on stage is as old as there being stages itself. Yeah. Um, so th- this is something that she loves. And this play, I think, is a really nice representation of what she can do and what uh, she her theatrical imagination is like when you combine the supernatural, the eerie, the terror with uh, with the stage. Now, in saying that, this is not like a jump scare saw uh, horror movie or anything like that. It is more more eerie is kind of the tone that she's going for. So it is it's a three part play. Each part is a different uh, moment in time, let's say, um, and uh, has characters which are they're kind of all reliving or living in the aftermath of an event which takes place just before the first part of the play, which is that a young girl named Celie is lost in a cave in North Carolina, presumably. They don't actually really know what happens because she just disappeared, but the there are several characters in the first scenes of the play, um, Seth, Kendra, and JB, who in uh, alternating monologues tell us about the area where they live, these enormous cave systems and these old, old forests, which people are rarely in. And they, in kind of a contradictory at some times telling of the story, tell us about uh, how Celie was lost in this cave many, many years ago when they were children, uh, during a party, basically, out in the woods in these caves. And she disappeared one night and was never found again. There were search parties sent out to search the caves, to search the forest, and this she was never found. And apparently this is not totally unusual or unheard of for these enormously complex cave systems in this area where the cave, where the play takes place. Um, in between these monologues which sort of slowly tell different perspectives on that story and how people have recovered and lived on or not lived on in the aftermath of this event uh, is Celie herself 
as a ghost, as an angel, um, and she sings some songs, she echoes some phrases, she describes what she sees in the caves, um, so kind of a supernatural, eerie ghost presence, as the rest of this part one is just these monologues, as J.B., Seth, and Kendra, all friends of Seely's from when they were kids, tell us about what happened, and then the kind of life that has led up to where the characters are. There's not really a present moment of the play, but basically getting them into adulthood. Um, and then in part two, we meet three other characters. We meet, uh, I'm sorry, four other characters, Michael, Allison, Danielle, and Billy. Um, this scene opens as Michael and Allison and Danielle are hanging out basically in a parking lot um, and uh, drinking some. And Michael is apparently just sort of a stranger who uh, made a connection with Danielle uh, in a restaurant or bar or some such um, that night. Allison is then a friend of Danielle's. And so the three of them are kind of hanging out. Michael is kind of trying to put the moves on Danielle. Um, eventually, Billy shows up, who is a uh, loud-spoken, a little bit aggressive uh, boyfriend of Allison. Um, he sends Allison home, and then he and Danielle get into it a little bit about the way that she he feels like she's been treating him um, and, and who this Michael Stranger guy is. There is a gunshot, um, and then we move to an overlook in these, if you've ever been to like the Ozarks or the Appalachians, these kind of big hill cliffs that you can find in there. And um, we move to a scene there with uh, Michael, the stranger, Danielle, and Billy again. And now they are in a, in a scene that Jackson and I actually are not sure that we agree on exactly yeah, what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> they relive the another death, another loss of Danielle's previous boyfriend, Tommy. Um, who they were planning to get married and move. They had, all, of course, all these grand dreams about what their life was going to be. And he died one night by falling off of the edge of this sort of highway overlook cliff. Um, and Billy was there. It's a little unclear um, Danielle's relationship to the incident, but she lost her, her lovely boyfriend, Tommy. Um, and so that Billy and Danielle and Michael are now at the same overlook. And Michael is either pretending to be Tommy and they're kind of reliving that evening in kind of a play-acting way, or there is some sort of supernatural time wibbly-wobbliness, and the actor playing Michael is now playing Tommy. And the connection, that has been built in before, because both Danielle and Michael say that he looks like Tommy a lot. Um, and basically, at the end of that scene, Billy shoots Michael um, and drives off, and then we learn that he was caught and sent to prison, um, etc., Oof, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Part three is characters we've met before. Danielle, who we just met in the previous scene. She had the boyfriend, Tommy, and they were out on the overlook. And then from the first part, JB, who was uh, a friend of Celie, the girl who lost in the cave, and then grew up to be a sheriff in the town. It is a conversation between Danielle and Celie about another friend of theirs who we've met before, Seth, who had come by to see Danielle earlier, and JB is poking around basically to find out what he was, what Danielle was told, um, and then eventually uh, JB leaps, and Danielle, in the final moments of the play, welcomes Seely 
either as a ghost or an angel, or maybe she was missing all along and has been hiding in the woods, and it's really silly. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, welcomes her into her trailer home. She lives, like, out kind of in the boondocks in North Carolina at that point. So that's, like, the kind of the plot of what actually happens, and it, right. it sounds wild, right? I mean, it sounds very hard to keep track of, and it is, and that is it, part of it. Right, right. This is a play with so many conversations to be had afterwards, right? There's just so many little uh, clues and hints, and so much has to do with how you choose to stage it, what tradition you are staging it in. So yeah, all of these, you know, these these scenes are kind of aftermaths of a of a traumatic event, right? Someone going missing in the caves. There's a really compelling. Uh, a monologue at the start that talks about caves and getting lost in caves and how the darkness begins to set in and you you be begin to hallucinate light as you wander around in caves. Um, so 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 there's it's this this big event in these like kids' lives that then has ripple effects throughout their whole life. Um, and and you do get into some kind of wibbly wobbly kind of mystic stuff around this ghost who appears um, in their lives. I mean, Celie is a character that keeps popping up in their story over and over, even when she's not there physically, the effects of that night when she went missing in the caves, however that happened, another kind of mystery, we don't know exactly what happened, um, ha have effects on them uh, that, that, that ripple even when she's not there. Yeah, and w watching what happens to these characters over time as their lives are impacted both by the event of Celie, but also sort of the haunting of this area, the eerie um, power to uh, sort of entrap these people in cycles that keep them where they are. That is also part of the ghost story, too. The area is sort of a ghost that haunts them. I want to read you just a small snippet here. And this is a, it is a part of a monologue that is delivered first in the part one in those alternating monologues as they're describing how things have changed after Celie was lost and, and what um, the lives of all these friends have been like. It is then re-delivered at the end of part two, now with additional context because now we know all of these characters and we've heard more about these stories. And the monologue, this is from one of the characters, Seth. Um, he says, Jolene died in her sleep before the year was out. Her heart just stopped. Nobody knew why. Tommy fell off the edge of a cliff down by Diamond Gap. Broke his back in the fall. Billy killed a man in the summer of 91. Got sent east to Odom, 25 to life. Allison died in a car crash out by Maryville. It's been five years since they put her in the ground. Sean died that same year. Hunting accident up by Mount Airy. Buried him in the snow before the first fall. Danielle's still living. Shoots speed in a trailer out by Boone. Tried to talk to her once. She looked right through me like I was some kind of ghost. Now, these are all characters who, in the first time we hear this description, and I don't, it's not the full description given the first time, but the first time we hear these basically... Um, basically endpoints for the characters, right? These How these people have died or the few that are still alive, we don't actually know these people that well. But by the time this comes around again, we know these characters and we know the contexts for many of these incidents that are being described. And so it, it is an interestingly... Um, it's sort of sad, it sort of weighs on you as you reach that point to have more understanding about these tragic deaths. Yeah, it's a really interesting way to, to, to kind of tell a story of, of these, these characters' lives being, uh, 
kind of sucked into either the ghost story of, of Celia or I like what you're talking about too with the ghost story of the area as well. Um, because the first time you hear that that uh, account of, of them, you're like, oh, well, that's a sad story. I don't know anything about them, but that's a, that's a sad story. Um, but when you get to re-engage it again... Uh, you've, you've watched that, that, that whole part two is the scene where, let's see, let's see, um, where Tommy fell off the edge of a cliff down Diamond Gap and broke his back, where Billy killed the man in the, in the summer of 98, you, where, where Danielle, uh, you, you get the origin story for why Danielle is now in a trailer doing drugs. So, so yeah, there's, there's, there's that kind of almost, um, th that kind of, uh, guilt that you feel now that you know the story and you think back to the first time you heard it, it's like, oh, that was maybe a little callous of me to just like... <laughs> say oh that's that's sad um but now 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 you know the full story and and can be with the characters well and that is that is the experience right is this phrase knowing the full story i yeah. like that you said it that way because that question that idea is the circling idea i think of the experience of the play do we know the full story can we ever know the full story? And what happens with this monologue that delivers the news of the death of all these different characters? The first time around, you hear it, and like you say, it's very sad that all these people died in all these different ways, but we don't know the story at all. And then the monologue is restated, and now we do know some of the stories. And you hear a phrase like, Billy killed a man in the summer of 91, and that doesn't it doesn't mean a lot until you hear, you see, you witness the events around that death that 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 he caused and eventually went to prison. And, and as you try to grasp more of the story, the 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 facts, the actually what happened of these characters' lives, you discover more and more. You're sort of grasping at fog. Yeah, yeah, it's really elusive, which which is probably nowhere is that more indicative than in the kind of what feels like a central character in this plot of of Seely, who you you just continue to grasp at trying to figure out what happened to her that night, and I don't I don't feel like I know <laughs> after having read the play. No, um, um and w what happened to her is a subject of debate. Yeah, I think right. I mean, it, and it's inference, not, right? Infer inference is better. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, you know, I think I think there's 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 good evidence that JB was involved somehow. Something bad happened around JB, both because um, there's there's kind of a narrative claim of that in the first part. Either um, I, I think I think it might be in one of Seely's uh, monologues in the first part, um, but then also JB's actions in the last part, where he's seems to be. An interpretation of what he's doing in the last scene is kind of grilling uh, Danielle to see if Seth told her anything about what he did that night, if Seth knew anything about what he did that night. Yeah, so I think this is this exchange is something we probably can set up as we piece together the puzzle of what has happened to these people. I mean, this is the play is also a mystery play in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and so when they were younger... Seth and Seely were a couple, and then the the party night, and Seely disappears, and it is suspected by many people that Seth and, and one of them in the in this opening monologue exchange in part one says it outright, kind of in a blunt uh, fashion, that Seth, you know, Seth killed his girl and hit her body in the woods. Basically, that is a long-standing suspicion about what has happened that night. 
Um, and so then by the end of the play, we're again dealing with an offstage death, which is impacting this third part. And the offstage death in this case is Seth. Yeah. Seth uh, basically walked into the caves, walked into the woods, and never returned now as a much older adult. But before he did that, he stopped to talk to Danielle. And now the scene that we actually witness is JB, again, a friend from back then who was known for being kind of mean and cruel as a child. He grew up to be the sheriff of this county, and he has stopped by to see Danielle after, in the aftermath of Seth walking into the woods and never returning, because he has heard, before he did this, basically before he did this suicide, he stopped to see Danielle. And that that sets up i mean to me one of the more interesting scenes of the play is watching jb try to dance around did he tell her something yeah yeah no it's it's really interesting the uh, i love so so the the two scenes right that we're talking about the beginning scene where we figure out that that seth wanders off he wanders off at least his monologue is about him wandering into the cave and finding Celia again. So, so he kind of goes off into the light that way. But then that that final scene with uh, with JB, I, he's he's talked about as this um, beloved character in the town, right? His his father was the sheriff, his grandfather was the sheriff, and he lives this life um, uh, that apparently over and over in this scene, he and Danielle, or really he suggests, I think mostly that they are the ones who made it out, who survived, who who managed to rise above the, the traumatic event in their childhood. And yet he's hiding something, right? You know he's hiding something, um, uh, but, and, and, he's, and he's there to kind of uh, figure, out, figure out if it's going to come back to bite him or not. Now, we know a little bit of supernatural evidence, which is, in fact, that it kind of did. Um, uh, he's, he dies uh, at, at like 70-something and burned on his back, are the words "remember me forever and ever" um, in kind of a uh, supernaturalish uh, thing that is happening? Um, that that line is one of the lines that's graffitied on the wall in the caves. Um, uh, it's uh, Seth and Seely forever and ever. Um, so so and then throughout the scene with Danielle, uh, JB is constantly like arching his back in pain. He says he has he has back pain. And he, he kind of has this burning sensation in his back. So you, you have like all this evidence of his guilt, all this evidence of something that's happened. And, and he's and he's there trying to grill Danielle, who just doesn't remember because she when Seth visited her, she was extremely high. Like she doesn't doesn't remember basically anything of her conversation with Seth, except for like little bits and pieces. And, and I mean, even that is is kind of up for debate and question, right? Because she could sure be lying to him, especially right. if she's being visited by, by the, the ghost. angel or ghost of Seely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it's this is in um, this is the end of part one. Again, we've had monologues from Kendra, who was a friend of Seely's from when they were younger, about uh, you know what what has happened to all these people. We've had monologues from JB and from Seth. These are the three people delivering these alternating monologues, which different describe the events that have happened and then that have led them into adulthood, blah, 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 blah. At the end of Act 1, Seeley takes over and gives the final monologue of this part. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's fairly lengthy. But she describes basically what happened to JB throughout the rest of his life. 
And this is one section of the monologue, and this is where I think probably a lot of your suspicion as an audience member or a reader uh, that JB would have been involved in that disappearance of Celie comes from. He's, she, this is, again, Celie the dead girl, either as an angel or a ghost or whatever. She says, He was well-loved, you could say. Well enough, nobody knew what he did that night so long ago. Nobody even suspected. Most thought it was Seth that killed that girl. Or if they didn't, they never said a word. Time made it fade away in their mind. Even for JB, that night became a faraway thing to him, something that happened to someone else, something he could barely recall. Yeah, and you also right before that have JB's own sort of confession in the line uh, JB says of, of Seth, um, they say the guilt tore him up. They say he did it. They say he killed his girl and he hid his body deep in that cave where nobody would ever find her. They say that. I know better. So so you have both of those lines at the end of the play. His line saying, I know better, and Seeley's lines talking about him that, that really put put him in, you know, in in light that he's hiding something beneath the veneer of Strong his suspicion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. And 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 beneath the veneer of, of sheriffhood, right? Of of this beloved character in the town, you hear uh, Billy mention JB in the one scene in, in part two that he's this kind of conceited person who doesn't want to talk to anyone. Um, so so he has this kind of veneer that he's hiding stuff behind, and you see him uh, kind of dealing with that in the, in that last scene. I think he leaves. I think he leaves the the trailer thinking she doesn't know enough to hurt him, or at least deciding not to act. On it, he 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 leaves. We we know eventually, or probably pretty soon, if his back pain is any indication to to die, um, with this secret still intact in him, and probably from D- in D- Danielle as well. Yes, and you never knowing exactly the facts of what occurred in any of the deaths which define the parts of this play. It's of course it's not it's not a play about that. It's a play about the mystery of it, and it's a play about the aftermath of it, and it's also a play about the perspectives looking back on it. Um, and and so trying to piece together everything that you know into a cohesive picture is impossible, and yeah. that's what's so. Um, I think enthralling about the play is that if you try to build that puzzle, it doesn't work. The pieces don't fit. And that is, I think, part of what Naomi Zuka is saying about these, this sort of eerie world that she has created, about our world, too. The, the puzzle doesn't fit together all the time. Right, yeah, but different people remember things differently and the story gets told weirdly. It's impossible to kind of piece it all together. There is probably a truth out there, um, but but to, to try to examine it through the lives of people, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later um, is, is impossible to suss out. Like the, the scene between Allison and Danielle, Allison is kind of recalling their childhood with Celie and that they sang in like choirs together and her description of, of that that 
that childhood with her sounds like a pretty normal, you know, childhood. And yet uh, the first scene has a lots of, especially JB, which kind of understandably, we know him to be possibly responsible for, for her death. Um, he's, he describes her as kind of a, a, a wild child, uh, someone who um, has, has uh, kind of very supernatural beliefs around angels and demons and her family uh, supports those as well. She lost her father when she was very young. So, so you have all these different accounts of who Celie was, uh, ju- just who she was and, and how she, how the friend group behaved around her that you're trying to, to hold in balance too. So the play is structured in this three-part, uh, I don't know why you wouldn't call them three acts, but she's titled them three parts in the play. And each part is the experience of people in the aftermath of a death. Of course, the first is the three people in monologuing about the aftermath of Celie's death in the caves, or disappearance at least. The second part is Allison, Danielle, Billy, Michael in the aftermath of Tommy's death. And then the third part is JB and Danielle in the aftermath of Seth's death. And for a play that is, uh, you know, like the back of the script calls it an eerie cycle of ghost stories, that, I mean, that sh- structure sure makes a lot of sense, right? You tell three ghost stories, what, what, what has to happen for there to be a ghost? Somebody has to have died. Right. And so she gives us three stories of hauntings, of death remaining in these people's lives, but only one ghost. And I think that's interesting. Tommy sure could have appeared as a character on stage as a ghost in the same way that Celie did and does throughout the play. Seth is a real, you know, is a human alive character in the early part of the play, but he sure could have appeared as a ghost character in that third act of the play. But that's not how no music has imagined the world. It's three ghost stories, three aftermath of death, response to death stories, but only one ghost. Yeah, that is interesting to 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 note that we only have the one ghost in Seely. Um, you do have a reappearance of Tommy in the kind of weird scene that you described in the synopsis, right? So you have Michael, who's this person who uh, Danielle found in a bar, um, who looks a lot like Tommy. This kind of kind of weird resonance about him, right? This kind of strange uh, thing that he looks exactly like him. Now, now we. Eventually, we'll find out that he's the actor who will play Tommy in the next scene. Whether that and and we can talk about Maybe. how that all works. <laughs> um, but but uh, yeah, so so you have that kind of weirdness of of a reappearance of the character, but it's different, right? Like Celie is written in the script. She has appearances in the state, at least in the stage directions. There are appearances of her in like a ethereal voice, in kind of a projected image, in partial images. She has these tattoos of angels' wings that appear without her face uh, frequently throughout. Um, so you, so it is definitely a different reappearance, a very kind of physical reappearance, as opposed to the the real push to have Celie be an ethereal ghost, a more traditional uh, restless spirit in our minds. Yeah, and and it, so you, across these three scenes, that ethereal, real presence that you're describing, um, it, it it sort of decrescendos, and that is fascinating to me, right? The the ghost of the first part. Celie is is a quite literal physical manifested 
ghost on stage for the audience to interact with. And she, of course, exists around from the end of the play. Celie, the dead girl, is still here somehow, whatever that means. Angels is the language of the play, but it's also called a ghost story. And then that second part, like you just described, we get a re- imagination of the dead person tommy but it's not it's not actually him it's either michael as a character pretending to be tommy or it is michael's actor kind of living in a world of flashback as tommy and the present moment as michael all at the same time and then in the third act we don't see seth uh, at, at all. Nobody plays Seth. Nobody, uh, we tell stories about him, but there's no physical manifestation of that deceased person in the third act. And so you, you, the ghost story evolves across the course of the play from a real ghost to basically just the haunting memory as ghost. Yeah. Yeah, so so there's the uh, a decrescendo or decrescendo is 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 a is a good way to think of that, and it's kind. Of, I mean, it's a little bit, you know. Well, well, here, 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 let's do it this way. I think we are trained in ghost stories to kind of want a resolution to the ghost story, right? Like the ghost it should be the character that we follow throughout, and and uh, and you know, if if we're thinking about you know horror stories or something like that, there's an an exorcism at the end or some sort of uh, peace that the ghost finds at the end um, that 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 you know neatly ties up the story. And that's not the play that's written here, right? The ghost um, uh, story has this huge impact in the beginning. I think that's reflected in our experience of the ghost in the beginning. And then we then we walk through the the little ghosts, right? The little ghosts of of Tommy and Seth, um, but they're bookended by the presence of that ethereal ghost at the end of the play again. So so it's kind of a, a flipping of of the script and and allowing allowing a, a more real story to emerge of of messiness, right? Of 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 a a story that kind of just uh, continues to peter out. A little bit as as the as these characters eventually all their stories end that still still bracketed within the experience of this ghost. And you wonder what exactly now music is saying with that method of telling the story where the ghost goes from a real physical acted ghost in part one to sort of a transitional memory part person part memory ghost in part two to full memory as ghost in part three and one possible option might be that you know as we grow older and the the accumulations of deaths the accumulation of hauntings the accumulation of things that bear us or that 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 bore down on us grows uh, the need for their for our minds and the world around us to manifest any kind of physical reminders of the ghosts goes away. The ghosts start to live more in us than they do in the physical world. Um, and then, and then to sort of <laughs> contradict that that kind of way of thinking about what ghosts and hauntings are, the play ends with a very real ghost uh, still haunting JB. Right, and not and not. And, and and an empirical one, or at least em- empirical as much as like a ghost story can be, but two characters hear a banging on the door, right? 
So so two characters are corroborating this 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 uh, banging on the door that happens, and then after after JB leaves, Danielle lets Celie in, and she was the banging on the door. So so yeah, there is there is this kind of. Uh, a uh, bit of a move towards a more conceptual or psychological version of what haunting is and the ramifications that it has on on people on or or what traumatic events have on people combined you know co- combined relentlessly with this kind of magic or this uh this this uh, 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 mystical ghost storyness that the story claims, right? It sits. It I don't think it uh, moves away from the kind of classic trope of of a ghost story. There is still this magical force or this this spiritual force at work, even as it does ask the interesting questions that are more psychological. How do these these deaths uh, play out in the in the more material lives of the characters? And- and how do the material, physical, lot? I guess alive lives. That's kind of lame. <laughs> I'm trying to contrast life before death and life after death because both are in the play. But but how do right. the before death lives, the alive lives? How do they have to battle the ghosts? I mean, literally in this play, the ghosts, right? I mean, JB in in his two parts, that's part one where he's a monologuing character and part three where he's the sheriff as an older man and is investigating what Seth told Danielle before he walked into the woods and disappeared. Seth, I mean, JB is the one who is the most at battle, right? In war with these realities, these memories, these things that have happened before. And you see him use the same tactic in both parts, which I think is fascinating. In part one, as he's, I think he's supposed to be a younger man at that point, but still far after the loss of Seely, his method is to decry her reputation, to paint her as a specific kind of person that would both eliminate suspicion from him and also cast blame on her and then you have the same thing in part three as he comes around to investigate what seth said before walking into the woods he says i'm just going to read a few lines here jb maybe he told you a story some wild story about something or other danielle could be jb he was full of wild stories seth was shooting his mouth off about this one and that danielle who can say jb i feel bad for seth falling down drunk half the time killing himself slow finishing the job he was a weak man seth was I pity him. So you see a living, alive, before-death person at war with a ghost. The ghost of Seely, who is a physical manifested ghost, and the ghost of Seth, who now exists only as a memory for Danielle, right? What is the memory of what he told her before he walked into the woods? That's the new ghost JB is at war with, but he's fighting the war the same way by basically disparaging the reputation of the ghost. Yeah, no, it's interesting to kind of note most of these characters who are well, I guess I guess this is interesting as opposed to Danielle, right? So you you see in JB um who you see you see that he has basically stayed the same person. Um he's ha- he's had a life, right? He's had a full life apparently. He claims that he's been able to rise above whatever that event was, and yet you see him deploying that same tactic again. 
as opposed to Danielle, who we've seen go on a journey in this play. You know, we know that she was in the cave that night. We know uh, that she then had hopes of of getting out of town, of going off to find a life with Tommy, of wanting to be a nurse. We know that Tommy was going to work in a factory. They were hoping to get out. Um, and that didn't work. Tommy died. Um, and, and she's, she's kind of, uh, then, then we get that scene with her and Michael and Billy and, and Allison and another very traumatic event happens in her life. We know that that leads her to drugs and this, this life in kind of the, yeah, the boondocks, um, in the, in this trailer. And, and yet in this last scene, you know, we expect, uh, JB to find her in the similar state that Seth found her in, right? Uh, kind of very, very high, very out of it, um, kind of fully regressed into this place. And yet when JB shows up, she's not drinking. She's not on drugs. She's, she doesn't have anything for him to drink. Um, she's, she's saying that she wants to kind of take this uh, next step of her life and remember it all and be a part of it all. Um, so, so you do see progress in her as a character. She has changed as a result of this journey where JB has not. And I wonder if that becomes why part two is in this play. It's almost, it, it, it's almost the new play. I mean, it's fascinating to think about that a character like Danielle, who is the final character we see on stage, who is, as you just described, you know, the one that really seems to be on a journey of self-change and healing, um, on a path towards something. And all those characteristics might make you say, protagonist, this is the sort of story about her survival and healing in the wake of all this loss. Um, it's a story about her dealing with the eerie world that she lives in. But she's not a character that appears until part two. And what happens in part two that might be so crucial in pushing Danielle forward on this path is the interaction she has with Michael. Michael, who looks so much like Tommy, the boy that she was planning to marry, move away with, start a new life with. And she is, they're, they're in this scene on the, le on the cliff side of these, this, these big hills. And this is uh, a scene where we're not, I'm not quite sure exactly what is supposed to be happening. I think Jackson and I even have a little bit of a different sense of it. But Billy, who was friends with Tommy and, um, and Danielle, who was, who's now the, it's not a, uh, not a widow, but the, right, the, right. the one left behind after Tommy's dead, they're on this cliffside with Michael. And Michael is either as a character pretending to be Tommy or as an actor playing Michael, playing both Michael and Tommy in a scene where two times sort of converge, whatever you want to think. But here's what he says to Danielle in the moment just before Billy kills him. He says, Oh girl, now why do you want to be stuck back there when you got all your life ahead of you? Why do you want to do that? And is this moment with Michael, who is a, a memory for her of this person who was going to change her life, they were going to move, they, they had all these plans, Tommy, her love, um, does, the, does the step forward or the, the, the subtle push on the path of Danielle's journey come from this ability to let go of the past with Tommy and, and create a new future for herself? I don't know. Yeah. And I think I think either way you end up interpreting that scene, um, those are two moments of trauma, right? Like 
the, the those two moments, either Tommy jumping off jumping off the cliff or Michael getting shot in front of her, and whichever of the two characters said it to her, um, that line has has such a such a punch, right? Such a such a moment for her character. Now now we know that she she. Uh, goes into a regressive spin after that and kind of goes off and and has this addiction that she's working through goes into the lives in lives in the trailer for x amount of time kind of going through that addiction but i think i think you're right to notice that that kind of defining moment that choice moment of are you going to live in in the in the past or or try to push forward into something new now there's there's also the, <laughs> the the ghost showing up at the end throws that all into a big old tailspin well, but, but too. But does it right because that <laughs> that could be then the culmination of this journey that Danielle is on. Now she is able to accept and live peaceably with the ghosts in her life. I mean we don't before that moment we don't have any sense of Danielle and the ghost of Cecil's uh, Cecil Celie's interactions. Um, we don't know that. Celie shows up to her before this moment with Tommy on the mountain. We we just don't know. Yeah. Um, but this is the song that ends part two. And this is a song Danielle has sung a snippet of before in part two. She sings a little bit of it throughout the part. This ends part two. She sings, What'll I do when you are far away and I am blue? What'll I do? What'll I do with just a photograph to tell my troubles to? What'll I do with dreams of you that won't come true? What'll I do? I mean, what if that's the question for Danielle? Maybe even the question of the play. What do we do when only photographs remain? What do we do with dreams that won't come true? Dreams of a life with someone that won't come true. And the the final scene then becomes a scene of contrast. These are two people, as JB says, the only ones who survived, really, this whole life. Um, JB and Danielle, and they are their their answer to that question, what'll I do with dreams of you that don't come true, is very different. Danielle has uh, moved into a place of living peaceably alongside these demons, these ghosts, and that becomes physically represented in her sobriety, in her ability to have moved past the phase of her life that involved a lot of self-harm. And then, of course, in uh, Celie's presence with her where she invites her into the trailer to end the play. JB has a totally different interaction with these ghosts, right? He's constantly asking questions about the past, constantly trying to pull Danielle back into the past, right? Trying to get her to drink. And then that becomes physically manifested in his interaction with Celie, which is the pain of her like burning a scar into his back as he's dying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so you, have, I, I like the the dichotomy between those, the burning of it into the back, and not only versus, not only does Danielle invite her in, she also like has a new song to sing with her. Oh, like she, yes, that's beautiful. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. So, and and especially in light of her singing that earlier song as well. So you have you have the repetition of the song over and over. Um, but but then and 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 the knowledge that as children they sang together. Right, they sang together in this choir that we find. I think we find out through Allison that 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 is true. Um, so so the the addition of having a new song to sing, a new thing to experience together, um, really adds adds to that punch of Danielle's journey towards. Um, yeah, I, I like I like what you said, living living well with the ghosts that she's has to live with anyway. 
And as you look back then on this monologue, which Celie delivers in part one and Seth delivers at the end of part two, this monologue about what has happened to all of these characters, you then see an even wider view, a more fisheye lens, a more pullback wide shot of how all of these people who were around for Celie and had their own ghosts throughout their lives, how they deal with it. Um, and, you know, we described all these people, Jolene, Tommy, Billy, Allison, Sean, later Seth. These are people who have had these tragic pains in their lives and either caused them to die or to be, in Billy's case, in prison. He could, I mean, Billy literally can't have a ghost around so much so that he shoots a guy who looks like the guy who yeah. died all that time ago, right? We learn that Sean's death in Hunting in the Woods was likely suicide. So it, it becomes a play about... What do we do? How can what is your life going to be with ghosts in it? Yeah, how can you how can, how do you choose to live? Right? Like how do you choose to live or 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 not in some cases? So so yeah, I yeah, I, I uh, the 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 slow s- reveal of the information of all of those characters, even the ones who aren't on stage and how how they've they've chosen to live or not with the story is, is really impactful. Also, I just, this, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but, but Kendra made it out too, JB. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like Kendra's doing relatively okay. She's afraid of the woods and has bad dreams, but she made it out. Um, but yeah, no, it's interesting to kind of uh, deal, deal with each of these characters and, and how they're holding, how they're holding the ghost. And in that way, that becomes a ghost story, right? I mean, I started my synopsis by saying this is a ghost story. It's a, a haunting story. It's an eerie story, but it's not like a horror movie in the sense that the monster is not a play about um, people at odds at war with a monster. It is about people learning to live with the ghosts that just simply accumulate across a life. We all have ghosts that accumulate, that haunt us, is what Naomi Izuka seems to be saying, right? We all have ghosts that haunt us, but who are you going to be in the haunting, right? And how does a life lived change your interaction to being haunted? I think that's about all the time that we have for this play. This, I mean, there's so many more conversations to be had around this play. There's a technical conversation to be had around it. Boy, this play. yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's like, there's so many cool ghost things that happen in that first part when Celia is kind of this amplified ethereal ghost. There's a great conversation around theater history in this too, around Japanese style, no theater and all the, the, the resonances that are in here, right? The, the ghost stories, the songs and, and, and that, well, there isn't like a mask uh, sort of scene or anything like that. These characters do wear uh, masks in a way, especially JB comes into the scene and uh, is presenting something other than he is. So there's all sorts of great resonances there. We'd love to keep talking about this play with all of you out there in podcast land. If you'd like to have folks to talk to about it, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about Language of Angels with you. Yeah, especially if you've seen it or produced it or been in it, because what we didn't end up talking about, we spent a lot of time more on story this particular episode. Great joy to get to spend different episodes talking about different things. This episode was a lot more about story, so we didn't get to talk about the spectacle of the show, which I'm sure is incredible. With some clever designers 
Um, I would imagine that the experience of being in the room as this ghost story or these ghost stories are told has got to be just wild. So if yeah. that's something that you've experienced or you've been on the producing end of, we would really love to hear from you, um, but anybody who wants to continue to talk about it. If you'd like to recommend the podcast, that'd be a huge help to us. You can send folks over to Podbean, where we're hosted. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, all work too. For the less technologically savvy folks in your life, as long as you know how to use Facebook, you should be okay. Like us on Facebook every Monday when the new episode comes out. There'll just be a live link posted right on our Facebook page. You can click and listen right from there. So, until next week, when we're talking about one of the last three plays in this season... I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script the Podcast. We'll see you.